Well, we are working our way through Colossians chapter 2. And uh, our Colossians, the book of Colossians, we now come to chapter 2. And the most important verse we're going to look at today is verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. But let's read all seven verses here. For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have seen my face in the flesh, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with the persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so... We really are continuing a thought from the last chapter, the very last verse, 29 says, to this end I labor, striving. The word there in the Greek, agonizomai, we get our word agony from it. I'm agonizing according to his working, which works in me mightily. And so in verse 1 it says now, so I want you to know that a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Remember, Colossae is in the Lycus Valley of what's Turkey today. We used to call it Asia Minor. And in that valley was Laodicea and Hierapolis, three uh, different cities that uh, were Roman cities uh, in that area. And Paul is talking Uh, about to all of them. None of them have seen his face in the flesh. He never made it to that region. Uh, The Colossae Church, again, was started out of Ephesus when Paul was there for three years. But notice he continues the same thought process. In verse 29, he says, I'm striving, I'm agonizing uh, to this end, according to the mighty working of God. And now he says in verse 2, I have this great conflict Both of these is a picture of a battle. I am striving, I'm agonizing, I have great conflict. There's a spiritual warfare that Paul sees, he he goes in. You got to remember, Paul was called in to be an apostle to people who have never heard about Jesus. So he would go into a city, typically stay for just a few days, start the church, put some guys in order. Okay, you're three days in the Lord, you can be the pastor. Um, and, uh, and then he'd go to the next place. Every once in a while, he'd say somewhere three weeks or six months or three years. Only happened once in those cases. And so imagine going into a city full of idolatry, full of the brutality of the Roman Empire. And you go into the swap meet of the day. That's the way the stores were. And you get on your soapbox and just start preaching Jesus. And this is why Paul said, I've seen the power of the gospel. I've seen it. And I'll tell you what, I I remember back in my teenage years, I I knew to be a witness, but I I didn't know how. And my brother, who was on fire for the Lord at that time, just said, hey, Brian, here's a, a book on witnessing. And basically the book just said, tell people that they're sinners and that Christ died for their sins. He was buried on the third day. He rose again and see what happens. And I thought, how can anybody be saved with such little information? And, and one night we went down, it was in San Diego, we were in Coronado Island, and they have bonfires there. And we went down there, and my brother said, hey guys, I, I have some news I'd like to tell you. And within two minutes, uh, a group of half-drunken sailors, half of them radically gave their lives to the Lord, and we saw them at church the next Sunday. And I thought, man, I got to try this. And I did. Over and over again, I saw the power of the gospel. So Paul did that. He saw that. And it's sort of a phenomenal thing to to realize that he was constantly 
out in the front of the battle line, sort of creating the battle. Uh, when you start stepping on Satan's toes, he wants to start killing you. And so he says it didn't end there, though. There, there's, there's a wrestling and preaching the gospel, but then there's another battle to keep the saints walking in the Lord and, and not to be swayed by other people and by other doctrines and, and by, you know, just the lying Satan. Paul really had a severe, remember in, in Acts 9, God said, I'm going to show through Paul how many things a believer must suffer sometimes for the gospel's sake. And so you guys remember that long list in 2 Corinthians 11, where he had uh, been whipped five different times. Ouch. He had been beaten with rods. Worse. He was stoned. We actually read it in Acts. He was stoned to death. He died. They dragged him out, this dead body, but then the Lord kept him living. Three times he was shipwrecked. Of course, in Acts, we, we read about the, the fourth time he was shipwrecked, sometimes days out on the water floating. All kinds of difficulties, whether he was on land or sea. Robbers, whether it was his countrymen or completely the Jews or, or complete strangers to the Gentiles. Whether he was in the city or the wilderness. Uh, no matter where he went, among false brethren, he suffered weariness, toil, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fastings often, cold, nakedness. But really the greatest suffering Paul said that he experienced was the final thing. And that which comes upon me daily, the deep concern for all the churches. So Paul didn't forget about the places that he started churches, but he also kept in his prayer life and heavy upon his heart, I call it a joyful burden, praying for those who have come to the Lord through other people he led to the Lord. So sort of his grandchildren churches in a speak. And, and he says, I'm laboring and concerned over them. So we see in, in Galatians 4, Paul says, I labor and then I give birth until Christ is formed in you. Oh, the labor pains. I'm in my nine months. Oh, Paul says, I, I live with constant birth pains. Wanting to see you go from just being saved unto living the sanctified life and growing in maturity in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, it's like a mother nursing her baby and cherishes that, that baby, that child. Paul wanted to be with the sheep, but unfortunately he couldn't because he was in prison. Paul talks about how once he leaves the church, that Satan takes opportunity in that time period between a pastor leaving and the new pastor getting established, so to speak. And he says in Acts 20, verse 29 to 30, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves, notice again, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among the, yourselves, men will rise up right out of the church that, that seem to be in fellowship with us, speaking perverse things, drawing away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul said, I, I, not being with you, it's hard. I want to be with you. And this is why, even though I was there three years, which is an unparalleled amount of time Paul was anywhere else, he said, the whole three years, I knew God's moving here. God, the church is growing here. People are loving Jesus. And, and I know that there, there is a strong, there's a strength to the church with my presence and my teaching that won't be there when I leave. And he is, the whole time, he taught them the truth, but he also warned them and prepared them for the attack that was to come. And then he said, it's not just all these different places, but everywhere that I haven't physically been and seen my face. Why? Because Paul was an apostle. And he had apostolic authority. And they wouldn't just say, well, so-and-so said that so-and-so said that Paul said, but Paul is there speaking it and 
contradicting the, the, the flying doctrines and speaking the truth that he got by direct revelation from the Lord. He, we can see his heart as he speaks this same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, making a request if by some means now at last I may find a way by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. He knew that the church in Rome needed a spiritual gift by Paul's presence being there and speaking to them what fruit would abound from such an occasion. First Thessalonians 2, he, he talks about how he endeavors to see them and has tried to see them. As we read the book, First Thessalonians, they were a little bitter about Paul not coming. And Paul says, it's not me. He said, Satan has out and out hindered me time and again from coming you. So Paul really did, as it says there in, in, in verse 1, he really did have great conflict on every side, wanting to see them face to face. Well, in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knitted together in love, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Christ is the Greek enunciation or transliteration of the word Messiah. So that you would understand God the Father and his son Jesus, our Messiah. First of all, he says, I want your hearts encouraged. That word, interesting enough, parakaleho, is, is a derivative of the word parakletos, which is the word for Holy Spirit the comforter, the one who comes alongside. So Paul is saying, I want to come alongside physically like the Holy Spirit who lives in you and, and be there with you to strengthen and help you. Paul is sensing the very thing that Jesus did, right? Remember in John, Jesus is like, I don't want to leave you, but, uh, but I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit will come and abide who's with you, who will be in you. And uh, here Paul is saying, I want to come alongside as the work of the Holy Spirit is in me. Just a little side note, it's not just the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us. It's not just pastors like Paul who come alongside us. But actually, there's a very powerful verse that all of us, I think, know who have been a believers for a while. And Jesus is called the Parakletos. In 1 John 2.1, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate. There it is. The word parakletos, the same word for the Holy Spirit is mentioned of Jesus. That advocate, that parakletos is with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we're struggling with sin, it's Jesus himself who comes alongside us and is our advocate the one who comforts us and takes us out of that mire time and time again. Little side note, no extra charge. But going back to this verse, but being knitted together in love. This word knitted is also the same word united. Knitting together. You think of knitting and all the strands of the fabric going in and out and through and around and, you know, like an organized piece, uh, you know, piece of spaghetti, right? Um, and this is what he's saying here, that you guys would be knitted together. And there's only one thing that's going to do that kind of knitting and keep us together. What is that? Love. Agape love. Jesus's love that he has for us, that we would grow in that same love that Jesus has in our lives. I think Peter said it the best, you know, love covers the multitude of sins. You know, right? I mean, that which divides us it usually comes down to human, humanness, human ugliness, human stinkiness, human uh, attitudes of, of, you know, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never stops. But often we say that when I've done marriage counseling and often people are wanting to divorce over things that you wouldn't think they would divorce over. 
And Jesus said, there's one reason divorce happens. That's it. Hardness of heart. They draw the line and saying, I won't forgive anymore. I won't love anymore. I won't believe all things, hope all things, endure all things anymore. We can do that with each other very easily. Matter of fact, once you do it with one person, you will do it with others very quickly. It's like that. It's like a cancer that grows. But what is always going to be the thing that unites us is God's love in us, our love with God. But if you're in the love relationship and all's clear between you and God, automatically you'll have that same fellowship with one another who are believers. I think Paul says it the most beautifully in the very next chapter. We'll be there uh, 2024. Um, but it says this in, in Colossians 3.14, But above all these things, what? Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Wow. And of course, in Ephesians 3, you might remember back in verse 17 and 19, how beautifully he says it, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the depth, or and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which what? passes knowledge that you just may be filled with all the fullness of God. So obviously the, the finite us cannot take on the infinite God. But he says, I will fill your life with love. Yes, it's an infinite love. So your brain can't absorb it. Your, your, your mind can't understand it. But there's a love that just forgives when Everybody, including yourself, humanly says, don't forgive that. Endure all things when our mind and everybody else says, no, nobody should endure that. But yet, we're just filled up with this love that passes all human comprehension because God's Holy Spirit lives in us. And then he says the next thing. So we, we first say that, we, that the hearts would be encouraged, comforted, They'd be knitted together in love. And then the next thing is attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. All the riches are yours now of what? Full assurance. Full assurance of what? In the knowledge of God. First of all, it's salvation. We have hammered this home in the last two years over and over again, because until this issue of salvation by faith alone and the grace of God is settled, you can never have a pure motive of just love in all your labors for the Lord. And Paul said, man, I labor. I have great conflict in me. As Paul's walking in the life of sanctification, he is working hard, but it's all to love the Lord and to love his church. It's not so he makes sure he goes to heaven or doesn't lose his salvation or makes up for that last past week when I was really struggling. No. John 20, verse 31, you know this well. By, he said, I wrote the whole gospel of John that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name that by faith alone, in Jesus alone, you are saved. In John 6, they were wanting to be fed again, and Jesus said, don't seek the works that are earthly, that, that, that won't have any spiritual continuance. And so they asked Jesus in John 6, verse 28 and 29, well, what are the works that God wants? Works, plural, notice. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, singular, of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What has God required of you, O oh man? <laughs> Just to believe in Jesus and to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to walk in Jesus and in him and live and move and have our being. But the moment you believe, like the thief on the cross, the moment he believed, today you'll be with me in paradise. John later says it even better, I think, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, verse 13, 
These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here it is. That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. All these things are written that you would walk away knowing that you know, that you know I am not worthy. I never will be worthy. I'm not righteous in myself. I'll never be righteous enough in and of myself. The only way I can get to heaven is if it's gifted to me. <laughs> and I can't dabble in that gift. It's 100% signed, sealed, and delivered by God's faithfulness, by God's work, by God, his nature. When we, we sin, his grace abounds more. When we fall seven times, he picks us up seven times. And so salvation comes by just having faith in Jesus and all that encompasses, obviously dying on the cross for us, his burial, his resurrection, but also his faithfulness. And how we need to have that issue settled. And he's saying to the church in Colossae, oh man, I so much want this to be so the riches of this assurance and the knowledge of God the Father and of Christ that you know that you know that you don't ever question it again. And secondly is the, the full assurance that God will never leave us. He will never fail us. He will never let us go. Uh, I have five verses on this, but believe me, I had 500. So it took a whole week just to narrow this down. So be patient. But in Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Got an amen on that? In Matthew 28, 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind of a power and a love and a sound mind. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jeremiah 29.11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. By God's nature, We'd have the full assurance of salvation and then the full assurance that God has given us that gift and he will finish the work that he's completed through his righteousness, not ours. Through his work, not ours. Through his faithfulness, not ours. Through his love, not ours. By him being the sacrifice for our sins, not us being the sacrifice for our sins. And then he says that the mystery of God, we've talked about this word mystery, it's not the Sherlock Holmes, it's just information that wasn't known is now known. And it's now known who Jesus the Messiah is and how God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to be that sacrifice for us. The triunity that you basically say in the mystery of God, the triunity, namely, that God came in human flesh. Paul repeats this in 1 Timothy 3.16 without controversy. There's no, there's no confusion on this point. There's no debate on this point. Great is the mystery of godliness. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is entered into the heart of man. These kind of things, unless God just tells us plainly, it's an amazing mystery. What is it? God was manifested in the flesh. Now, as we're going to go on, we're going to see the Gnostics that were perverting, trying to pervert the church here. This is one of their main points. Later, First John says, hey, anybody that says Jesus did not come in the flesh is of Satan. Because this is such an important point. That God, who lived in a perfect heaven, who was with his father in relationship, came into human flesh and suffered, a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, a man that looked like he was smitten of God and afflicted. It was all to bear our sins, to be bruised for our transgressions, to be pierced through for our iniquities, and the chastisement, the crucifixion of our well-being fell upon him by whose stripes we are healed. 
Great is the mystery of godliness, but here it is. God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, who came into human flesh. The word that created all things became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he lived it out. He was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Here we are on the opposite side of the planet, 2,000 years later, believing on it, received up in glory. Well, in verse 3 now, but again, it says, and of Christ at the end of verse 2. So now we know the in whom is, and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Jesus. You see, the Gnostics claimed to have secret knowledge that only those who are members can know that knowledge. And it's a part of their organization. You'll find that in every cult. The Mormons, well, we've got secret underwear and you got to go get it in the temple. Nobody but Mormons are committed and quit drinking coffee and, and, and pale as me. And only they can, can know the secret underwear and the secret handshake. And guess what? You've got to be a Mormon to be right with God. But you think about all the other groups that say you've got to be a part of our organization. Being right with God is destined in the fact that you're right with our church, our religion. Anybody that says that's a cult. Jesus on the cross didn't say, make sure the Pope is, is in Rome. And you know, you know what I really want? A giant grand poobah hat. That's what I really want him to have. It doesn't make sense. You see, Jesus, who didn't wear any religious garment, and the religious teachers hated him because he didn't look religious like them. He wore regular clothes, hanging out with the Sea of Galilee, the lake, the lowest freshwater body on planet Earth, uh, fresh water behind him, and on the hillside, the thousands listening to him. He never established any organization beyond that. No crystal cathedrals, no stained glass windows, no incense burning, no bells chiming. And, and you know what? People found a rest for their souls without this organization being in charge of things. It's, it's essential. It's a part of the very nature of Jesus that gives us a rest for our soul. We are definitely not the only right church. You do not have to be a part of our organization to be a part of to be right with God. It's just, I need to be the traffic cop pointing you to Jesus. Hey, Brian, I have health issues. Let's go to Jesus. Hey, Brian, I have relationship issues. Let's go to Jesus. That's all, that's all we're ever to do as Christians, just be a traffic cop. People coming and saying, I, I can't see Jesus clearly in this. Let's open it up in the Bible. Let me, let me give you a clear vision of Jesus. That's all we're to do and love Jesus. Follow Jesus and love people us until we die. But they were not, the Gnostics were not seeking it in Christ. They were seeking it in their organization and their religion. And Paul is coming back and saying, no, it's of Christ in whom? It's in Jesus. Where is the deepest knowledge going to come from? In Jesus. Where's the greatest wisdom going to come from? In Jesus. Where's the healing going to come from? In Jesus. If Jesus said, if I be lifted up, all men will be drawn unto me. That's all we're to do every day is lift Jesus up. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because Jesus lifted me up. And I want to lift you up the way Jesus lifted me up. Jesus cleansed me. So I want to speak these words and see you cleansed like Jesus cleansed me. Jesus loves me and never lets me go. And so I want to be that person that loves you and never lets you go. Barclay in his commentary says, Paul wanted all to know that real wisdom and not hidden wisdom in some secret books, 
but are all deposited in Jesus Christ so that we all may have access to it. The word hidden here actually is translated stored up. So it's not that it's hidden and we have to dig and find and bury it. It's saying it's stored up in Christ. It's, it's all been throughout time. Remember, the Father is glorified that to every knee would bow, every tongue would confess unto Jesus. And so it's there, all answers, all wisdom, all knowledge will be found. And so the answer is go back unto Jesus. Vaughn says this in his commentary, hidden does not however, mean that they are concealed, but rather they are laid up or stored away as a treasure. It's all there. What's it say in the Proverbs? The wise man seeks after wisdom like a buried treasure. And so it's in Christ. So we seek after Jesus and we find the treasure that is there for those who seek him. And so all these treasures and wisdom are not in pseudo-intellectual Gnostic teachers. It's not some superior knowledge hid away in some building. But it's through knowing Jesus. And Paul has a personal experience of this. You might want to read someday the book of Acts chapter 17 once again. And Paul there goes into Athens, into the Mars Hill And on his way is a statue and a plaque and something to every God that's ever been known on the planet. They even had one saying to the unknown God, just in case we didn't identify you, sorry, didn't mean to upset you. And Paul, being the great educated intellectual that he was, said, today I would like to talk to you about this God who's unknown to you. And he quoted the Epicurean Stoics and or, uh, Epicurean Gnostics and the Stoic Gnostics. He quoted their great sayings and had this very elegant speech. And it says at the end of that, a few people came to Christ. No church. Well, right after that, the very next place he goes for the first time is Corinth. And he is not coming right in in a wave on high. He just had... Thousands of people hear about Jesus and reject him. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 2, you know this, that I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with excellence. I didn't do what I just did a couple of days ago on Mars Hill. I'm just... Reduced, and I, and I realized the power of the gospel is in Jesus and him crucified. And that's all I spoke to you. And boy, God exploded the work there in Corinth. A very difficult church, but a very large church. And in verse 20, or chapter 2, verse 4 now. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So Paul is trying to say, I'm an intellectual. I I can debate these guys. And I'm not there to debate them. And you guys don't have the, you know, decades of education that I have and the wealth of experience and knowledge I have. But you know what? You you can win over this. I just say, don't listen to this stuff. (laughs) Don't be deceived by it. So he says here, I'm confident that you're not believing it. But I'm worried about the danger if you hear it and then you believe it. So they haven't believed it yet, but he knows some people on the fringes are um, listening to what they say. It was an interesting statistic. You can type it in. Of the various denominations that are being proselyted to Mormonism. And you'd say, oh, well, I know, you know some of the more liberal churches could easily be proselyted to Mormonism. The number one denomination proselyted to Mormonism, more Mormons coming from the Southern Baptist Church than any other church. I would have thought it was Episcopal or the, you know, the United Methodists or something. Why? Because churches have the reputation of having sound doctrine 
But people are not willing to listen and absorb sound doctrine. We are all called to be disciples, learners, growers, daily in the word, daily in prayer, daily seeking after Jesus to have the full armor of God, to be strong, to, to repel all the arrows of the enemy. And one of those is deception. Well, in verse 5, he says, you haven't been deceived yet, but you're in danger. And then in verse 5, and though I am absent in the flesh, yeah, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order, your steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So Paul says, hey, I'm not there physically, but I'm with you in spirit. Now, I don't know how Paul means that, but I, I do think he's saying, I'm with you, praying with you when I know you're meeting and I'm praying God's anointing upon your time together. I'm, I'm praying, I hear about so-and-so and I'm praying for them. I am with there. Paul doesn't say that just here. There's another time in 1 Corinthians 5 when a man had married his stepmom. Gross. And the church's first reaction is, oh, full of grace, we accept anything. And Paul said it's very clear in the Old Testament that's an abomination. Just like a homosexuality and just like uh, worshiping a, another god, having some idol, it's an abomination. No. And he tells them, and, and he says, the next time you come to church, you tell that guy that he's no longer welcome there and do it through my apostolic authority. Tell him by the, the name of Apostle Paul has directed us to do this and his spirit is with us, even though he physically is not here. Now, the next two phrases are actually military terms. Your good order and your steadfastness of faith. The good order or the fine order are literally making a strong line that the enemy can't get beyond you. So I'm noticing that you guys have a strong military line and the enemy is not moving you. And then he said the steadfastness, the steadfastness, you're not backing down, you're moving forward. I mean, that's always what you want from a military, right? It's like, oh, somebody shouldn't have me, run! It's like, no. Hold the line. Don't back down. Retreat. Shut up. We're not retreating. Hold the line. We're going forward. We're going at them. Paul is saying, that's what I hear about the church there. And I'm confident that's what's happening. But again, it's hard to get Christians to realize they're in a war zone. You, you know why Satan often has so much effectiveness in spiritual warfare? is we don't realize we're in a spiritual warfare. It's like, oh, that happened, that happened. That's just, you know, things like that happen on planet Earth. But also Satan makes things like that happen on planet Earth. And sometimes things that you may naturalize are actually spiritual. And until you realize you're in the spiritual battle, you're going to continue to lose. You're trying to do all the warfare with your human abilities when in essence, it's spiritual warfare. So you need a spiritual sword and a spiritual shield. We know this well, don't we? In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that to be strong, O Lord, the power is might, put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's a wild and crazy guy. Do you know, we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against principles of the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Realizing, you guys understand it. You're not being deceived, but at the same time, I, I hear that there's some weakness there of the possibilities of some being swayed by these very smooth-talking, fast-talking, eloquent uh, Gnostic speakers, and they also are talking about Jesus, and they also believe uh, in the Jewish a lineage of Christ, and they also, but then they, they take it to another, and what they said is true. Man, it's some good stuff there. I think I need to listen and help my marriage. That Gnostic guy asked me to meet him for coffee, and, and uh, he asked me how my marriage is going, and I, nobody at church has ever asked me that. I thought that was really helpful, and, and then on top of that, he gave me some great marriage advice. I, I, I need to, you know, I can't just shut these guys down so quickly. I, I think they have some wisdom there. Don't. Open that door. Don't be deceived by these things. We are in a spiritual warfare. Of course Satan is going to appear as an angel of light. If Satan were to appear right now, we wouldn't feel evil. We wouldn't feel darkness. 
we would feel this deceptive heavenly light. It would be spiritually, oh, do you feel that? I feel so at rest and peace. We would all sense that. Satan's a deceiver. And Paul says, and so is every false teacher. And so is every false apostle. And so is every false prophet. There is a real spiritual deception. And unless we are in the spirit, then we can discern it. But even, even then, it's a little bit difficult. Remember Paul and, and Acts? There was this lady that claimed to be saved and she followed them for three days saying everything perfect. She was like, oh, they helped me. Everybody listen, everybody listen. Listen to this, Paul. Go for it, Paul. Preach it, brother. You know, come on, man. And, and after the third day, they discerned, finally, this is Apostle Paul, that this was a demon speaking out of her. And they turned around and cast the demon out of her and then knowingly stopped. We call them Karens today, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> but even Paul had a hard time discerning it at times. And so he is saying, don't give these guys the door open. Don't let them get their foot in. Because we are in a spiritual battle and we need to realize we're in a battle. And fight in that battle. Hold your line in that battle. Move offensively forward in that battle. That is what we must be in. And that's my life, Paul says. And it's also every believer's life. He says in 2 Timothy 3 that all of us who live godly in this life will be persecuted. Well, now we come to the most important verse here today. In verse 6, an easy, short verse we can all memorize. As you therefore have received, past tense, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So the question is, how did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord into our lives? The answer is by his grace and just believing in his grace, having faith in that grace. God loves you. I don't know, man, my life's been hard. I think God's up there and sort of mad at me. I don't blame him. No, believe this, God loves you. And he loves you more than anything in the universe. He sent his only begotten son to take your sins upon him, to die, be buried on the third day, raised again, that you can receive the gift without works, without of yourself, just receive the gift of eternal life. Can you believe in a God that is that full of grace? The thief on the cross did, didn't he? Even though he was mocking Jesus himself on the way and even on the cross, he's saying brutal, horrible things to Jesus. He had been a thief his whole life, but yet he had faith in the goodness of Jesus, even for such a man as himself. And Jesus says, faith in the grace, You'll see, we'll be seeing each other in paradise. And so it starts with faith. By grace, you've been saved through what? Faith. Faith in the grace. It's not of ourselves. It's not of a wonderful character we've had in the past or a wonderful potential character we'll have once we're born again. It's not of our character. It's not of our obedience. It's not of our goodness. It's not of our nature. It's about Jesus and his nature. Very distinctly, first of all, and emphatically different from not of works. So often we, we, we go quickly over not of yourself. Calvinism says that once you believe, we will start seeing in your life that the good works that Christians do. And if we don't see that good works in your life, well, that's a sign that you never really believed properly. You had a faith. It just wasn't saving faith. The Bible has no such thing. There's only faith, period. It doesn't say what quality, it doesn't say what quantity, it doesn't say how repentive or how sincere, it just says faith. Some Christians do start walking in obedience and they become disciples and they're going to have much reward in heaven and they're going to be fruitful upon this earth. But some Christians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, not one day after being born again have they built upon the foundation of Christ with one brick of a good substance that will make it into eternity 
for rewards. We need to understand it's not of ourselves, it's not of our works, it's just a gift of God. It's actually called in Acts 20, 24, it's actually called the gospel of grace. That's the name of it. What's the name of your gospel? Grace. That's, our, that's the name of it. Secondly, we need to understand this, that how did this start by grace? How do we continue by grace and by having faith in that grace? That's what's going to keep us, is constantly having faith in the grace to the very end. Notice after Paul says in Acts 20, 24, that I preached you the gospel of grace. Notice what he says in just a few verses later in Acts 20, verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend, I commend you to God and to what? The word of his grace, which is to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. It starts with grace. In the last breath you breathe on this earth, either before you die or before you're raptured, it's having faith in that grace. And all of a sudden, we're going to be before the Lord. And if we have an inheritance, it's because we walked as so many others did in sanctification and in honor, not in the lust of our flesh like the Gentiles. Paul, or Peter says this, I love this, in, in 1 Peter 5.10, may the God of what? All grace, who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've suffered a while, Amen to that. May this grace of God perfect, establish, strengthen, and ultimately settle you <laughs> into heaven. Thirdly, it's by keeping faith in the grace. And so grace is what saves us. Grace is what sanctifies us. Grace is what keeps us every day. And then it's continuing in that faith to the very, very end. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. Who would be ashamed of the gospel? It is the power, the, the word of his grace is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Not some and, and other, others believe, but they didn't have say, real saving faith. It doesn't say no such footnote. Everyone who believes whatever kind of faith they may have had, knowledgeable faith, repentant faith, little faith, no faith, uh, little knowledge, but they had faith enough to believe that God so loves the world and gave his only begotten son. For the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What is, where is the righteousness of God revealed? In the gospel of grace. From faith to what? To faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. So as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, faith in his goodness, faith that he would forgive a sinner. Now I'm three days in Christianity. What do I need to have faith in? God's goodness. God forgives sinners. Where my sin abound, what? His grace abounds more. The righteous man falls seven times, gets up seven times. As we're trying to walk in the light as he is in the light, are we doing it perfectly? Never. The blood of Jesus Christ will keep cleansing us from all sin. He himself is constantly at work cleansing his bride, washing his bride with the water of the word that will be without stain, without blemish, without wrinkle. Standing before the Father, he presents us to the Father perfect. This is the grace of God. We also know it's having faith in that grace every day in prayer, isn't it? Knowing that we go to Jesus who understands. He understands deeply. He understands more widely than any human. He was tempted as every human being can be tempted. None of us have gone through that. We all struggle with many sins, but not every sin. But Jesus did. And even though he came with fleshly pressure of anger or greed or lust, he never crossed the line and sinned. But he knows how difficult and weak this human body is, so he sympathizes with us in all our weakness. What are we to continue to do? 
Come boldly to the throne of what? Grace. Not to the throne of our righteousness or the throne of judgment or the throne of perfection, but just come to grace. Just like that thief on the cross, he looked at Jesus going, wow, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Every day we just come and say, Lord, remember me that my flesh is no good thing that dwells in it. And he says, as a father pities a son, so I pity you. And he crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. And so we come boldly to the throne of grace. And what do we get at the throne of grace? Grace, right? <laughs> and mercy to help us in our time of need. And so we, what happens if we fell in faith? The righteousness of God is revealed by faith. Well, if we are faithless, not just struggling in your faith, but the bottom drops out. Something overwhelmingly happens, and for a time, you just have no faith in God. What does it say? That God doesn't give up on you. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Once you come unto Christ, even if the bottom drops out, he does not let you go. He and the Father both have you in his hand. He'll never let you go. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, <laughs> for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul hit the wall. He said, I'm, my ministry's over. I can't move. I can't do anything. I am completely been in this state of, uh, of whatever the thorn in the flesh was. We don't know. He goes, my ministry's gone. And he started praying. And, and, and the Lord says, Paul, Faith in the grace. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and here he was, this old seasoned apostle. And he also was faithless. He was struggling. He was, his focus was gone in the midst of the thorn in his flesh. That's all he could see was his flesh. And he was spinning out. And God said, hey, don't forget, my grace is always sufficient. No matter what season you're in, no matter what physical, financial, relational, whatever, there is no season. My grace is not greater for you. The opposite is true, I might say, if you try to walk with Jesus thinking that you owe Jesus and you have to respond in a certain way. And if you don't respond in that certain way, then now you're going to help because of your own sinfulness. Most of Christianity's pictures it this way. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He puts his Holy Spirit in you, and then he passes you the baton, going, now it's up to you whether you make it across the finish line to heaven. And we're holding this baton going, I need to submit more. I need to obey more. I need to pray more. I need to love more. I need to forgive more. I need to, uh, uh, uh. And, and, and we're like going, have I moved forward at all? Well, I, I went 10 steps forward, but then I went 12 steps back. Man, help me, help me. Beat up on me, pastor. Tell me what a wicked man I am and, and that I haven't lived up to the expectations Jesus had for me and, 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 and scare the hell out of me. So I'm, I can start moving forward again. So people go to these kind of churches to get beat up. Oh, I feel so good I got beat up because I deserve it. Now, from this humble, beaten state, I'm going to pray better than I've ever prayed this week. I'm going to love more. I'm going to lust less. I'm going to be less greedy than I've ever been. Jesus, I'm going to do it this week. Give me help. You know, it may last a few days. I think man can motivate man for a few days. But I've never seen where man can motivate man from one Sunday to the next. <laughs> it's got to be the living word of God that changes us. God's, Jesus isn't passing any baton. He's the author and the what? Of what? Our faith. Romans 12. He's the author and he 
is the finisher. He is the author, and you are the finisher of your faith. No, he is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. You came weak. You came completely sinful. You came with no strength, no power, no ability to save yourself. Jesus offers you this gift. What is it? My righteousness. I want you to have my righteousness. I want you to have eternal life. I want you to right now carry in your back pocket a get out of free jail. (laughs) You shall not perish. You shall never perish. You'll never come under judgment. There's no condemnation in Christ. (laughs) Why me? It's not just for you. It's for the sins of the whole world. Christ died. This is the gospel message to everyone who whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the way it starts. How do I walk in the second day? I come now as a knowledgeable sinner. So now I'm really repenting. Yesterday, I didn't realize how bad my lust and greed and anger and bitterness was. Now I've learned that even when you say idiot, it's like murdering somebody. I'm sinning more. No, it's just you're aware of it more. How do I make it through the third day, though? Any guess, anybody? It's by just having faith in the grace. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When we get to that finish line, we're not going to say, didn't I do a good job? Man, did you see those last 10 years when I was in a coma? I didn't sin once. I was really doing well. (laughs) We're never going to say, praise me. The best we have ever done in our own is our Righteousness is as filthy rags compared to the least of Christ's righteousness. That's why he has to give us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. We become exactly as Jesus is. He raised from the dead unto a new body. Looked very much like his old body, but it wasn't. It was a new body. And unto the Father he went in his perfect righteousness. And the Bible makes it clear, exactly as Jesus raised from the dead, he was the first fruit of all those who believe. We, just like Jesus, will have the same heavenly body. And we will go to the Father with the exact righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's not going to be Okay, now you guys have 50% righteousness. You're in the, you know, living a couple hundred miles away from the throne of God. You're, you're over in the, the ghetto area because you only have 50% righteousness. But you other people, no, we're all exactly like Jesus. We even sit on the throne with Jesus. Now, didn't it sound like heresy? We're going to be exactly righteous as Jesus is righteous. No, not me. I'm too, too miserable of a person. It's a gift. We're going to sit on the throne. I'm not a king. Yes, you are. The Father has made you a king and a priest for his glory, for his satisfaction, because it pleased him. Man, we got to get this. But the opposite is true. If you say, it's me now, I need, to, I need to start being more submissive, more loving, more obedient, more forgiving, less lustful, less greedy, less angry. What does he say to Galatians chapter three? He says there in verse one through three, he says, O foolish Galatians, O foolish Calvary Chapel Los Alamitos, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ clearly betrayed among you as crucified. This I only want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Did you receive God's Spirit coming into your life, being born again by your works? Or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? Boy, there it is right there, isn't it? 
As we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so we walk in him, having faith in the goodness of God. When I come to that throne of grace, you know what I don't get? Condemnation. You know what I don't get? Disappointment. You know what I don't get? Annoying. I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed with you. I'm tired of your weakness. I'm tired of your sin. That sounds like your mother when you were a teenager, but... um, No, he's like, no, you're my precious little one. Come. I've told all of you to forgive each other 70 times seven a day. How much more my throne of grace will give you, forgive you 70 times, infinite number daily of of forgiveness and grace. Well, then we finish with verse seven. He ends in verse six, so walk in him. Walk who? How? In Jesus And in Jesus, be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding, overflowing in it with thanksgiving. Paul uses a a, a confusing amount of metaphors here. He says, walk. And then he says, hold it. No, it's it's like growing something, a root, a, a plant growing. Uh, No, no, it's like a building, uh, and the building's being built on a solid foundation. Clark says this, It is not unusual with the apostle to employ double metaphors, taken partly from the growth of a tree or the increase of the building. But here he's giving three, walk, rooted, grounded. He goes on to say, Clark in his commentary, They are to be rooted as the good seed had been already sown. It is to take root, and the roots are to spread far and wide and deep. They are to be grounded as a foundation has already been laid. They are to build thereupon. In the one case, they are to bear much fruit. In the other case, they are to grow up to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. What happens when we understand we have a gospel of grace? We come daily to a throne of grace that God always sees us through the grace and the love of the Father has for his Son that Jesus has for us. Come on, you parents. Your kids were horrible. (laughs) Could you imagine cutting off your life from them? No matter what they did, you're going to love them and weep with them and hold them and hug them how much more God, our Father, loves us exactly as he loves his son, Jesus. How much more celebrate. We can have great gratitude, thanksgiving, an overflow of rejoicing. That's what grace does, isn't it? So let me ask you a question. Are you walking by faith in the grace Are you walking and your trust, your faith, your your hope is only in trusting in the grace of God? Here's, Here's the biggest sin you can ever commit. The unpardonable sin is not believing that God is loving enough. Not believing God is forgiving enough. Not believing that God's going to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things with you. Not having faith that he is the author and the finisher of your faith. If somehow you say, God's not big enough to forgive me. God's not powerful enough to forgive me. Loving enough to forgive me. I've crossed the line. (laughs) There you go. The righteousness of God is revealed From faith to faith. Starting with faith, ending with faith. Secondly, are you seeing yourself as a warrior? Do you see yourself holding the line? Self advancing forward? The fact is that God is calling all of us to be soldiers in the army. Why? Because the world is full of people like you used to be without the knowledge 
of Jesus Christ, without a clear understanding of the God of all grace, who will make himself in your life sufficient for whatever you go through. Last of all, is your faith in the grace causing you to have a deep gratitude, great joy, and thankfulness. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, for the knowledge of your grace. Who could make this up? Who could figure this out? Who could come up with such a religious thought? Who could reveal such a God as you? But Lord, we know you now. We know that you created this world. You hold all the stars in your hand. You've made this entire giant scientific petri dish of amazingness, whether it's the growth of a fingernail or whether it's the gravitational pull of the moon, whether it's all of the infinite amount of fish and creatures continue even after thousands of years or still discovering. Lord, you, God, have made us. We have sinned against you. But you, at the right time, the perfect time, sent forth your only begotten son, your unique one son, Jesus, who also is God in human flesh. And he came and he revealed himself to us, grace upon grace grace, that of his fullness, we would all receive grace upon grace. Let us all come today to the gospel of grace, to the word of grace that's able to establish us and assure an inheritance amongst all those who are living in that sanctified life. Lord, we come to you now and we reestablish ourselves in your grace, in your truth, in your love, in your power, in your forgiveness, in your righteousness. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen.